Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. It's Friday, October 27th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, happy almost Halloween, buddy. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. Um, I don't think we're going to be able to say it next week, so I'm just going to say it now. Happy Halloween. Uh, enjoy your tricking. Enjoy your treating. If you're watching Halloween movies, if you're just having a nice bottle of wine to yourself, just enjoy it. Are you dressing up? Um, we're not sure what we're going to be yet, uh, and we really should, but we're, we're floating some ideas around. Right now, the, the top um, contender is... Joe Pesci and Marty from Home Alone, or Marv, sorry, Jesus, uh, from Home Alone. Gotcha. And then Botch would be, our dog would be uh, Kevin, wear like a big red sweater. Nice. I was going to ask if you were dressing up Botch, but um, we can't dress up our cats. We were thinking about it, but Nora <laughs> and Penny do not like clothes. Um, also, if you're watching any clips on TikTok, this is this is Penny. Uh, she is sitting on my lap as I record. Um, I guess, yeah, I'll definitely put out a clip with her in it now. <laughs> you have to. Um, I'm going to dress as Obi-Wan Kenobi, though. I finally I finally got like a good costume that I can reuse year after year because that's that's my guy right there. Shout out, Ewan. <laughs> nice. I feel like this is like four years in the making. Like you've been waiting on a good Obi-Wan costume. I've always just like I flirted with the idea and I'm always like, oh, you know, like I'll be something else this year. And finally I was like, you know what? No, I'm getting like a good robe, some like actual Jedi <laughs> garb. I don't know. I can like cosplay it with other stuff. Like if I go to the Renaissance fair again next year, I can like wear the robe and be a wizard. So I don't know. It's like, it's multi-use. That's how I'm justifying there it. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's multi-use. Um, you can write that off on your taxes as just an asset. <laughs> yes, De- definitely. Definitely going to put that on my taxes. There you go. <laughs> All right. Let's get into today's show. for our quick hits for the week. And the first one is a two-parter with two links in your show notes. Chris Isidore writes, ExxonMobil agrees to buy shale rival Pioneer in $60 billion deal for CNN and a CNBC press release says Chevron to buy Hescorp for $53 billion in all stock deal. All right, I'm going to start this off with, uh, once again, oil and gas companies are doing fine right now. I am sick of the subsidies they receive from the global economy. I am sick of the bad faith actors always saying, why do we have to subsidize renewable energy? Uh, Because we subsidize fossil fuels too. Like, yeah, sure. If we want to cut subsidies to everything, fossil fuels are still going to be cheaper and going to have less of an impact on the entire environment, the entire atmosphere. So it's not like an apples to apples comparison. And yeah, like this right here is the same thing that, bothered me last year when gas and oil prices were skyrocketing and everyone's like, Oh, you know, it's, it's inflation. It's this and that. No, it was corporate greed. Like these companies are doing amazing so much so that Exxon has 60 billion to dish out. Chevron has 53 billion to dish out. Like it's, it's so frustrating, but all right, let's get into like the actual 
facts of what happened, and then we can you know talk about it after. Exxon bought Pioneer Natural Resources last week, which is expected to more than double its footprint in the southwestern United States shale market. Exxon was actually slower than other U.S. oil companies to get into the shale oil market, which is a crude oil that is trapped inside shale rock. Those rocks have to be broken apart to actually extract the oil from them. The first article that we linked ends with the following quote. The Biden administration has taken a much more critical position on approving mergers than past administrations, challenging some deals on antitrust grounds. And it has also been critical of big oil for high oil and gas prices, even though those prices are primarily set on global markets, not by the oil companies themselves. The other merger comes from Chevron purchasing Hess and CEO John Hess joining Chevron's board of directors. This is projected to increase Chevron's total oil and gas output by 40 percent. And it's also going to catch it up to Exxon's shale production following the other merger. Yeah, I mean, I started this off with this sentiment that I'm just going to echo, but it's just so frustrating that at a time where we need to be rapidly decarbonizing, at at a time where we need oil and gas companies to be making less money or, you know, making the same amount of money, but hopefully a lot of that comes from renewables that they're investing in. Yeah. That's not what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of the status quo and we're seeing a lot of things that are going to make it extremely, extremely difficult for us to reach net zero by 2050. And, you know, these multi-billion dollar mergers, two of them in basically the same week, that kind of just emphasizes that to me. And and it's really, really frustrating for lack of a better word. Yeah. And I think your point at the beginning, too, that you made about how we're we're subsidizing oil and we're not really subsidizing like renewable energy as much. Like just level the playing field, like at least do that yeah. because otherwise like we're not going to have a chance with, with, with getting rid of fossil fuels. Yeah. And, and to your point, like we are subsidizing renewables a ton, but it's not on the same playing field as it is for fossil fuels over the past century. You know, we have made it so cheap and so easy for fossil fuel companies to make as much money as possible. And, and like they, they did it. Congrats. They beat capitalism. They won. But what we need now is like an equitable approach to our energy solution. And that looks like subsidizing fossil fuels at the same level. Right. We're starting to see more of that, you know, like the IRA in the U S last year when that passed, that was great. That, that increased the, the incentives for solar energy, something like 30 cents per watt. So we're seeing really good incentives starting to level that playing field and incentives have been around for a while, but like there are more and more now, Yeah, but it's still not on the same level of what we have seen for the oil and gas industry over the past, you know, hundred years. Agreed. All right, let's move on to our next story. And it's from the BBC where Mark pointing writes sea level rise, West Antarctic ice shelf melt unavoidable. The ice shelves in West Antarctica, which are a major hindrance to sea level rising, will melt in the coming decades. That is the bad news. That's, you know, the first thing we got to address here is just that's going to happen. This also suggests that future sea level rise might be higher than scientists have previously predicted, because as those ice shelves melt, the melting of the ice behind the shelves increases. If the sea level were to rise to its worst case scenario of one meter by 2100, Hundreds of millions of people will be at risk to coastal flooding. And that's according to pointing in this article. That's also just, you know, the main thing that we need to get across here when people say, oh, the sea level is going to rise. What does that matter? Here's where it matters. Hundreds of millions of people at risk to something 
that, you know, it's going to destroy property. It's going to destroy livelihoods. It's not as simple as saying, oh, you know, we're going to be at risk of coastal flooding. We'll just sell our house and move. Who is going to buy that? Yeah. You know, who, who is going to insure that? Yeah. And, and it's also not even talking about like, not even considering, I should say, like port cities mm-hmm. just like could be gone straight up. So like, uh, or unlivable, or we're going to have to figure something else out by 2100. So a lot of things can happen in that time, but that stat alone is extremely scary. Yeah. And, and to your credit, I don't doubt human ingenuity, like human inventiveness, whatever we want to call it. Yeah. I think there will be ways to build up seawalls and find solutions for when things are very much underwater. Like look at New Orleans, for example, with the levees, like we can probably do something similar to that on a massive scale in other cities, but yeah, it's not the thing we want to be doing, right? <laughs> like it's a lot better if we can mitigate this issue. And unfortunately it seems like that ship has sailed. Yeah, seriously. So the study found that the Amundsen Sea off the coast of West Antarctica will warm roughly three times faster than historical rates, which will lead to ice shelves melting faster, regardless of whether we stop emitting fossil fuels rapidly, kind of what you just said. West Antarctica is less stable than the eastern side and could raise global sea levels by roughly 16 feet if it melted entirely. Yeah, and, and you know, just to, I guess, break that point down a little bit further, the, the reason Nick said, regardless of whether we stop emitting fossil fuels rapidly, is because CO2 in the atmosphere, methane in the atmosphere, nitrous oxides, sulfur dioxide, those are all going to stay in the atmosphere for a long, long time. CO2 is going to last for hundreds of years from the time that it is emitted to the time that it fully breaks down. Methane is much quicker, um, but still much more potent. So, you know, these are things that if we stopped emitting fossil fuels today, October 27th, 2023 is the last time a single fossil fuel is used ever. We're still going to see temperatures increase, which means we're still going to see West Antarctica's ice shelf melt, which means we're still going to see sea level rise. So at this point, what we're saying is, we need to rapidly decarbonize. That way, the temperature stops increasing as much. That way, we can start to recover sooner. You know, we're not talking about avoiding climate change. It's here. It's happening. It's going to continue to happen regardless of what happens today or tomorrow. But we can make that a lot less bad and start that road to good sooner mm-hmm. if we stop emitting fossil fuels. Yeah. And at least mitigate damage in that case, too. Like. Exactly. Not have such a massive hill to climb and not spend a crazy amount of money in a frantic panic, basically. Yeah, it's easier to, like, what, what's the term? Uh, don't get ready, stay ready. It's something we always used to say in sports, but, like, that's mm-hmm. how you got to treat this. Like, we we won't need to adapt as much, right, if we can mitigate. And, and at this point, like, we need to adapt now. We are seeing these effects now. But it's not too late to mitigate some of that damage and, and make the worst of climate change not as bad. So, yeah. That's why we're continuing to fight this fight. Um, The other thing I want to bring up when we're talking about sea level rise is some people like to make the glass of water analogy when they're talking about sea ice melting. And they'll say, you know, if if the ice cubes in my drink melt, the water in my glass doesn't overflow. It's not like that ice just displaces everything. But that's the wrong way to look at things. And I kind of want to explain it on more of a natural point of view. So we're talking about the sea ice shelves and how that sea ice itself 
floats in the water and prevents land ice from melting. What we're seeing when the ice shelves melt is that it makes it a lot easier for chunks of land ice to fall into the sea and melt. And that's kind of where this gets important because as they melt, it's going to cause more glacial retreat, cause more land ice to flow into the ocean. And that's where your sea level rise happen. Smaller chunks of ice are going to melt faster. And think of that as like a whiskey stone versus a small shaved ice, Mm. ice cube. Right. All this is to say, like, it's going to accelerate the trend. That's how it works. I hope that explanation made a little bit of sense. It made more sense in my head than when I said it out loud, but (laughs) that's kind of the gist of it. I, I think he's, I think he spoke it well. I think it's a tough issue to comprehend because there's so much science behind it. Mm-hmm. But I think I just got it from what you just described, and I, I hope everyone else did too. And if you didn't, go back and listen again. <laughs> or look up the link in your show notes, and maybe maybe that'll help more succinctly summarize it. Yeah, there you go. That too. <laughs> All right, time for this week's environmental policy roundup. Some good news for U.S. climate policy as the Department of Energy announced seven regional clean hydrogen hubs, which will increase research and development of a zero or near zero carbon emission energy source. This should help decarbonize the industrial sectors that are very difficult to decarbonize with renewables alone, and it's going to create more clean energy jobs for the U.S. California is drafting rules that would limit vegetation next to buildings in areas that are prone to wildfires. Fire experts recommended installing walkways and patios directly next to a house, not plants. These walkways or patios can then serve as a buffer during wildfires that would reduce or even prevent damage to homes. Homeowners are predicted to push back against this rule, which may even require them to move existing plants. The United States Environmental Protection Agency banned trichloroethylene or TCE on Monday, which was commonly used in refrigerants, degreasers and dry cleaning. An estimated 250 million pounds of it are used in the U.S. every single year. It's a major carcinogen, and the assistant administrator of the EPA's Office of Chemical Safety and Pollution Prevention, Mikhail Friedhoff, said, The science is loud and clear. The chemical is so dangerous, even in small amounts, that we don't think any uses can safely continue. Yeah, about the California limiting vegetation next to buildings one, Um, I'm just picturing like my mom's reaction to this. Like if someone told her like, Hey, you have to like basically just move all your plants like away from the house and put them like more like centralized and then build like a patio. Mm -hmm. And I can just see her just going completely nuts on like whoever it would be like the town, the city, whatever it was. Yeah. But like, we don't live in California. And I think if we did, she would be like completely welcome to it. And I think it's like, it's one of those things where, do you really really want to risk like people's lives like for for no reason kind of like it, it does make sense especially in the extremely prone areas yeah like during peak wildfire season for them to have whatever it is pat patios walkways any concrete like that will just serve, serve as, as a buffer serve as a buffer serve as anything in between um you and a and a like blazing fire give yourself yeah. a little bit of time in between so yeah and it's not even just about the time. It's about like there's less for the fire to catch on if there's less shrubbery right next to the house. So, you know, maybe those flames never reach your house. And I think it's it's interesting for us to talk about this. Like you said, like we don't live in California. Our parents don't live in California. And 
I think you're hundred percent right. Like I'm thinking of my mom, I'm thinking of my dad and I don't see them taking lightly to someone saying, Hey, this house that you bought that you live on, you can't have your plants this close to your house. You know, it's just kind of like, it goes against the whole idea of home ownership in the U S for whatever. We can go on a huge tangent about that, that topic entirely, but (laughs) it goes against what our society has kind of made common. And I think the important caveat here is like, we don't live in a wildfire prone state. So that's probably something that they're going to receive pushback on. Like, let's not, let's not say they won't, but I'm sure that the homeowners there are more receptive to that than, you know, people over here in the same way that like maybe people in, in Florida would be more receptive to something that's going to prevent storm surge during a hurricane than people in Nevada. Yeah, that's a good comparison. All right. As always, those stories are in your show notes if you want to read for more detail. We are going to take a quick break and we got two more stories for you when we get back. Stay tuned. Today's episode of The Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance, daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. Welcome back to the planet today, folks. Next up, Atlantic hurricanes are getting stronger, faster. Study finds by Delgar Erdinasana of the New York Times. This is one of those climate change impacts that we are already seeing on the east coast of the U.S. And it's only projected to increase in prevalence over the coming decades. So I figured this was a really important topic for us to talk about. A study conducted by a group of environmental scientists, including Dr. Andra Garner at Rowan University, found that hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean are now twice as likely to increase from a weak storm to a Category 3 or stronger storm within just 24 hours. This has major implications for human life, destruction of property, destruction of ecosystems, economic recovery, and disaster planning as a whole. The author points out that when hurricanes intensify this quickly— It becomes hard to predict patterns and how severe the impacts will be in certain locations. And this is potentially going to cause issues for evacuation orders. And that's sort of what I was alluding to when I mentioned disaster planning. Yeah. And this is also a problem because of the increase in the number of hurricanes we're seeing per year. The storms will be stronger. So we're seeing rapidly intensifying storms that were already stronger than the average storm 20 years ago. And then we're also seeing more of them. So just double-edged sword. The study found that in the past two decades, tropical storms that were category one or lower 
had an 8% chance of becoming a Category 3 or greater in just 24 hours. From 1970 to 1990, the chance was just 3%. So the article points out very succinctly why hurricanes are becoming more dangerous by stating that hurricane season in the North Atlantic is from June to November when the ocean water is the warmest. Ocean temperatures are rising, so the conditions that lead to hurricanes are becoming more common. Oceans are the world's greatest heat sinks, trapping over 90% of the heat caused by increased greenhouse gas emissions over the last century. So the best way to decrease the likelihood of hurricanes becoming more dangerous is to rapidly decarbonize the global economy. Dr. Kerry Emanuel of MIT was not involved in this study, but explained the danger in rapidly intensifying storms. He said, you go to bed, figuratively speaking, at 10 at night, and there's a tropical storm in the Gulf of Mexico. And then you wake up the next morning and it's a cat four, eight hours from landfall. And now you don't have time to evacuate anybody to warn them. I mean, that right there is exactly why this issue is so important. You know, like we we know why it's a big issue for more category three hurricanes, more category five hurricanes. Obviously, that's an issue that's going to lead to more storm surge, more destruction of property, more loss of life. That's not what's focused on here. What's focused on here is the fact that they are rapidly becoming that intense. So it's harder to predict and say, hey, seven days from now, there's going to be a category four hurricane that reaches X coastline. If you live in this area, you need to get out of here. You know, for for a tropical storm, for category one, they're going to say bunker down, stay safe. You know the drill. Category five is is a very big difference there. And in this case, like Dr. Emanuel said, you go to bed and it's not a problem. Then all of a sudden you have eight hours to pack up everything and, and get a move on or go into your hurricane shelter, where, whatever it is. Yeah, You don't have time to ad- adequately plan. And that's where we're going to run into major, major issues in terms of loss of life, in terms of damages, in terms of recovery. You know, It's just bad all the way around. Yeah. And this explanation that Dr. Carrie Emanuel does is extremely relevant because we have Hurricane Otis that literally just hit, um, we're recording on Wednesday, it hit Tuesday, and it was a tropical storm on Tuesday morning, and then by late evening, it was Category 5, and it is the fastest strengthening on record in the Northeast Pacific. Um, I know this is about the Atlantic, but still wild that in just basically 12 hours, um, a, a tropical storm could become a category five and then boom, it's on landfall. It's hitting Acapulco um, just like that. So a really scary thought. And it's also like a reality as yeah. well, at least in the Pacific. Everywhere. And to your point, the, this article did point out that this study can probably be extrapolated across the world, but this is just the largest study that they've ever done on something like this. And it was focused on the North Atlantic specifically, but you're right. Like this is the exact thing we're talking about happening in real time. Yeah. And you know, like we're going to talk about it next week. We try not to cover things the day they happen because we're going to get things wrong. And on a weekly show, we want to be able to talk about everything in total. Um, but you're a hundred percent right. And you know, all I could say right now is I am just so hopeful that everyone is okay. Yeah. Like what else, what else can we say? Yeah. I echo that. And yeah, just got to wait and see. All right. 
Our last quick hit of the week is from Stephen Groton of Reuters, who writes, World far off track on pledges to end deforestation by 2030. Report. Yeah, awesome episode today, right? <laughs> Lots of good news. A lot of great news, <laughs> yep. No shortage. Um, I will say that I think we are at our best <laughs> when we're talking about the frustrating stuff because, uh, <laughs> you know, we just get to voice those frustrations that I'm sure a lot of listeners are are in their car on the way to work echoing right now. So yeah, disappointing, concerning news to close out today's show. And this kind of goes back to 2021's UN Climate Summit in Glasgow, where over 140 countries pledged to end deforestation by 2030 and to reverse forest loss. This year's annual forest declaration assessment report found that deforestation has actually increased globally between 2021 to 2022 by 4%, which puts us 21% behind our goal pace for ending deforestation by the end of the decade. In old growth tropical forests specifically, the world is 33% behind the goal. Part of this can be chalked up to the researchers stating that $2.2 billion in public funding is insufficient to protect forests around the world, but the blame also falls on livestock grazing, road construction, and logging, all forms of human development. Some good news is that 50 of the countries are on pace, including Brazil, Indonesia, and Malaysia, which all contain forests that are critical to the world's total forest cover. Derek Conway of the Forest Declaration Assessment says this is a testament to what good laws and an investment in enforcing those laws can actually do. Yeah, I think the worst part about this one is that we've like we've actually increased mm-hmm. deforestation by 4%. Um, we, we could be at 14, we could be at 15%. Instead, we're 21% away yeah. from our goal. And, and now from our it's goal like- pace. From our goal pace, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like we're not 21% away from ending all deforestation. It's like we should at this point be 21% further ahead than we are. Right. We're not. Yeah. And it's only, we're only seven years away now. Uh, basically six and two months. So just a lot that needs to be done and, and changed. Yeah. It's, you know, it's super concerning and I will echo what Derek Conway said that good laws and and good investment into protecting these forests and enforcing deforestation laws does go a long way. So it's not like this is a death knell for for the world's forests. Um, I'd also like to add that it's not like ending deforestation is linear. It's it's not like we need to be 25% of the way to that 100% goal once we are 25% of the way to 2030. But that being said, it is so much easier to just reduce every single year by a marginal amount instead of making massive changes in, let's say, 2026 to get us to 50% reductions from 21. Right. It's so much easier to do 10% a year than to make some massive, massive shift one year into another. And I wonder too, like, what would that even look like? What would a 50% reduction look like? I, I, and I know you don't know the answer, but like, it's, it's scary to think further down the line and think that we are going to have, there is going to be like a day zero and we're like, shoot, we got to figure this out now. And, and what do you do? I don't know. Yeah. I think it would be a massive recession because you're going to totally disrupt entire sectors of the economy. Um, yeah. And it's a lot easier to figure that out marginally than it is to just put people out of work. 
So, right. you know, in, in this one example of deforestation, maybe that's not the best thing to say because like some of this is illegal logging, but some of this isn't. Some of this is just agricultural grazing. And you know what? We got to figure it out soon. And shout out to the global leaders that are actually trying to do something about deforestation. Like our boy, our boy Lula. Love you, Lula. All right, that's going to do it for today's episode of TPT. We will be back next Friday for another episode. But until then, go give the show a five-star rating and review wherever you listen. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. And follow Nick Janusa, who makes all of our show's music and produces the show. God, that was a weird outro. Nick, where can people listen to your music? <laughs> you can listen at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo is made by Kaylee Veets. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here next Friday. Peace. Peace.